The first lesson this morning is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers, he said. The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Good morning. As you may have noticed, I'm not Pastor Gus. My name is Dick Wright. I know most of you, but not all. Um, he did a wedding last night late, so he's not here today. The topic of the sermon today is, Will They See Jesus? I was, uh, I was raised a Catholic in East Boston, Massachusetts. And I graduated college in 1964 with a degree in chemistry. And by that time, I had decided that belief in God was silly. And Christianity was simply ignorance hidden behind what Christians call faith. Science had become my god. I went to work at Polaroid in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It was the Apple Corporation of its day, for, you, for those of you who are old enough to remember it. It was a place of exciting research and brilliant scientists within walking distance of MIT and Harvard. Many of the people with whom I worked 
have little or no interest in religion, and this just confirmed my decision to be an atheist. As years passed, I found myself feeling a kind of emptiness that I couldn't explain. I got a wonderful family, a house in the country, an exciting job, but something was missing. One of the scientists in the physical chemistry laboratory that I was working at that time was an Orthodox Jew named Arnold Hoffman. He had his PhD in electrochemistry. He was not only brilliant, but he loved life and wasn't afraid to live his faith openly. To Arnold, faith in God was a given. He didn't have to prove it to anybody, and he never tried. It may seem strange, but knowing Arnold was one of the key moments in my decision to become a Christian. If such a brilliant scientist could believe in God without embarrassment, could live his life with joy, trust, then maybe I should ask myself why I had used my science education to reject the idea of God. I started reading the Bible, and in a short time, something awakened in my heart, and somehow I knew it was true. Jesus was real. He lived, he died, he rose from the grave, as the gospel said. My life was given new meaning, and I've never looked back. Why do I tell the story of Arnold, the Jewish scientist who lived his faith every day? Because it taught me a lesson about being a witness to my faith. I remember a discussion I had many years ago with an acquaintance who said to me, I believe I'm a Christian, but I really struggle with some of the stuff I hear from Christians and the stuff I see them doing. It often seems so arrogant, so self-righteous. It just doesn't sound like Jesus to me. It doesn't look like something Jesus would do. It doesn't sound like something Jesus would say. It doesn't look like something Jesus would do. We Christians are often in situations where our response to the circumstances of life will be seen or heard by others. And at that point, we are witnessing to our faith whether we like it or not. The question is, what message are we sending when we interact in a world of non-Christians or even marginal Christians? What do they learn of our faith as they observe us? Do they learn principles of godly living, like grace, love, hope, kindness, joy? Or do they see us more interested in our opinions on end-time prophecy, church authority, or liturgical forms of worship? Do we show them Jesus, or do we show them divisiveness, disputes, disagreements, antagonism, or self-righteousness? I'm not suggesting that there are not important areas of scripture that relate to such things as prophecy and church order and liturgical forms. I am suggesting that these are not areas that the unchurched, unbelievers, or marginal Christians can relate to or even care about. They will not discover Jesus in the continuing debates among honest believers on these issues, and they most certainly will not discover him when these disagreements are angry, discordant, and self-serving. They might, however, see him more clearly if we as believers 
demonstrative lives modeled after the love, grace, faith that Jesus demonstrated. Maybe they will then listen when we share with them the story of our discovery of the Savior and the blessed hope he gives us. Maybe then they will listen. As I've studied the Bible, I have, uh, my, by myself, I, I have discovered what I think are the most important ideas that Jesus sought to teach us, especially as they relate to our interactions and relationships with non-Christians in this troubled world. What will show them most clearly their need for Jesus? I have settled on four ideas, love, grace, faith, and sin. Yes, even sin. I believe that understanding these ideas will set us on the right path to living a life that Jesus would respect and bless. I offer no detailed theology, and I certainly claim no authority. But I ask you to prayerfully consider what I present today and turn to Scripture yourself to see if these words and ideas have merit. Can there be Christianity without love? Jesus said that love was the fulfillment of the law. He said the, most, the two most important commandments were to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And to be sure that we would not misunderstand, he gave us the story of the Good Samaritan that we read earlier. Did you ever ask yourself why Jesus chose a Samaritan? A Samaritan as the key player in this story. To a Jew in Jesus' day, the Samaritan was a person to be hated, avoided. Samaritans were considered half-breeds, not real Jews. They were born out of the period in Jewish history when the northern tribes were conquered by Assyria, and many of the people were dispersed throughout the Assyrian Empire. Other people were then brought into Israel and bred with the remaining Israelites, resulting in the people of Samaria, the Samaritans. Again, they were a hated people, and yet Jesus chooses a Samaritan to make his point about love of a neighbor. And who was his neighbor? The one in need was his neighbor, a Jew. In spite of the ethnic and religious differences, Jesus makes it clear we are to love in spite of our personal likes, dislikes, prejudices, and biases. Our neighbors are not only the people next door, the folks here at church, the people you agree with. Jesus doesn't give us that option. Our neighbor is the person in need. And how do we understand what Jesus meant by love? So the other important word in this story is love. What did Jesus mean by love? In our culture, the word love has lost some of its significance. We love ice cream, Tootsie Rolls, Ford Mustangs, and Ohio State football. We also love our wives, our children, our grandchildren, and our best friends. How can love of Tootsie Rolls and love of my child be the same love? That's the only word we have. The Greek language has 
Four different words for love. You'll get a test at the end of the sermon. Agape, philia, eros, and storge. Only two of those appear in scripture, agape and philia. But they had four. They have specific and different meanings. Eros is natural, erotic love, when you get the pitter-patter in your heart. Philia is affectionate regard or friendship. Storge means love and affection, especially of parents, children, family, familial love. Agape is the word that defines love as Jesus' love. It is the love of God, unconditional, a selfless, giving kind of love that always seeks the good of the beloved one. The best definition of agape is found in 1 Corinthians 13. You've heard it many times. Every wedding has this. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy. It is not boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Agape. Note how it is not so much about feelings and emotion, but about actions and attitudes. Actions and attitude towards others. It is also the principal word used for love in the New Testament, with only a few exceptions. I think I calculated like 98% of the references to love in the New Testament are agape. Just a few times the word philia is used. Consider a life lived on the basis of 1 Corinthians 13. Consider a life lived on the basis of 1 Corinthians 13. 13. What would people see if they observed such a life? Would that life seem like every other life? Or would it stand out in some way? How the world and the church would be impacted by people seeking to live lives of agape. How might non-believers' view of Christianity be changed if they observed agape in the normal course of everyday life. A short story. A young man gets on a subway train in New York City. He has two sons, five and seven, that are with him. He sits down, holds his hand over his chest and starts, stares at the floor. His boys begin to fuss with each other and start running through the train, jumping on seats, bumping at the passengers who become more and more angry. What kind of parent will allow this behavior? Why isn't he disciplining them? This is shameful. Is he drunk? Is he on drugs? One man has had enough. He approaches the man. Sir, don't you see what your children are doing? How can you allow them to misbehave like this? What kind of a father are you? The young man looks up. He says, oh, I'm so sorry. We just came from the hospital. Their mother just died. And I don't know what I'm going to do. Get a little different picture, don't you? Changes things, don't you? you, you look, how you feel about that young man. Our initial response is anger, frustration, judgment. 
We don't initially think about the man and what might be going on in his life that would cause him to behave like this. But suppose Agape told us that there is something happening in his life that needs a loving touch, a moment of kindness. Suppose the man came to him, sat down, and offered a kind word. Sir, is something wrong? Is there anything I can do to help? How it might change the story. Just that little moment might have changed just made that man's life a teeny bit better at that very difficult moment. Philo of Alexandria, that's another name for the end of the sermon, you'll, you'll get the test. Philo of Alexandria, one of my favorite sayings ever, he's first century Jewish philosopher. This is easy to memorize. Be kind, for every person you meet is fighting a great battle. Got that? Be kind. Every person you meet is fighting a great battle. As Christians, I believe we are to learn to respond to circumstances we face with love first. Judgment comes later. Grace, my personal favorite word. The scriptural definition of grace is God's free and undeserved help which he gives to us so that we may respond to his call. It is, in a wonderful way, his very life infused into our soul. Without it, we cannot ever hope to know God. Grace is important to me personally because as I look back at my life, I realize that without God's grace, <clears throat> I would be without hope. I would be lost in that dry, angry atheism that had sucked all meaning from my life. But for some reason known only to God, he reached out to me in my need, showed me the truth of his word and the wonder of his redeeming love in Jesus Christ. That is grace. Now be clear, in scripture we are saved by grace, justified by grace, given security by grace, prepared for effective service by grace, we are helped in our weakness by grace, and we are strengthened by grace. And if you want all the verses, I'll give them to you sometime. It's all of God, and we have no basis for arrogant self-righteousness or angry condemnation of others. Our position in Christ is a gift. The blessings we have been given are gifts. We should be saddened and embarrassed when we see Christians condemning others who have not received the gifts that we have been given. We need to pray for our fallen world and ask God to open hearts to the grace he so willingly gives. We must not sit back proclaiming how right we are and how wrong they are. In Luke 18, verses 9 to 14, <clears throat> we read the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Jesus says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, Thieves, rogues, adulterers are even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Which one understood grace better? Which one best represents me? So think about that. Faith is also a gift from God, but it involves our free response. Through faith, we can know about God, Jesus, and life itself. At some point in our life, God reaches out to us, grace, and places in our heart and mind a clearer picture of reality. We then hold true what God has revealed to us. The problem with faith is that often we forget that it is a gift and we get frustrated when we cannot get others to accept our faith. So many struggle with faith. I, I know that I did and sometimes still do. We are human after all. And that thing that the Apostle Paul called the flesh keeps getting in the way. The wonderful gifts God gives us. We must realize that only God gives faith. We cannot. We can, however, always be ready to give an account of our faith to others. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. But do it with gentleness and respect. We cannot condemn and degrade a person into the kingdom, but we can seek to live lives that show others that our faith leads to more joyful and fulfilled living. And that same life is available to them. And what does the world need more than that? What do our children, spouses, and friends need more than that? What do our unbelieving friends and acquaintances need more than that? You cannot tell a blind man what seeing is. You cannot tell a lost soul what faith is but you can demonstrate it by a life lived with grace, love, faith. What does the world see when it looks at me? Does it see grace, love, and faith? After all that good stuff, why add sin? Because without an understanding of sin, we would probably not see love, grace, and faith as being all that important. As Christians, we see the importance of sin every time we look at the cross. If sin is no big deal, why do we have that big cross up there? Scripture is clear. Sin is serious business with God. But if the Gospels are any indication, Jesus placed sins of arrogance and self-righteousness and pride high on his list. It wasn't the adulteress, the prostitute, or the corrupt tax collector that he so openly condemned, but the experts in the scriptures, the temple leaders and the pious Pharisees who had lost the ability to love others and had failed to understand grace. We are such an interesting creation of God. We're all too often quick to condemn the sin which does not trouble us personally. If I don't drink alcohol, then the alcoholic may be especially sinful in my eyes. 
If I'm not tempted by drugs, then the drug addict may be the target for my disdain. It's so easy for me to see my, set my standards high for others <clears throat> while I quietly justify my own low standards. You remember the tax collector and the Pharisee? One knew what sin was. The other had no clue. Love, grace, faith, and sin. If we seek to build a Christian ethic, we must have these at its core. We cannot live life as Jesus commands without understanding them. Our lives lived in faith, lived in love, trusting Jesus, knowing that our future is a blessed one, even in the face of trials and loss, are the best testimony we can offer to those who struggle to believe. Love is our job. Grace, faith, and knowledge of sin are God's. If we don't do our job, then it becomes more difficult for souls to open themselves to God's grace. What does the term body of Christ mean? If it isn't that we are to be his body, the source of his love to needy people. We are Christ made visible in a needy world. That's what body of Christ means. The church has a job to bring every soul possible to Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He offers living water, the very spirit of God, to all who thirst for a life of hope. He offers eternal life. We are the people called by Jesus to accept our role to show him to those in need of love, grace, and hope. Our vision for Church of the Cross is visible to all who enter at the ramp entrance. Beautifully presented there. Grace so pervades the atmosphere of our church that questions, doubts, and fears can be honestly expressed, and every person is loved, respected, nurtured, and celebrated. Every person, key word, every. Now, something a little different in the middle of the sermon. I'd like to call a few of my dearest friends to sing a song that I find especially appropriate for the times we're facing as a church community. I've watched these young people uh, grow over the years. They're young to me. <clears throat> so I've watched them grow in their faith for many years, and I think in many ways they have sought to obey the call of God to love others. They also sing really, really well.
I'll speak with this one. That song touches my heart every time I sing it. The key word here is all. Bring them all to the Lord. Those with nothing, the weary, the heavy laden, those who toil and struggle with life, those who mourn, the children. Bring them all to the Lord. No matter their past, their present, their color, their fears, their doubts, their questions, we must open our hearts and our doors to them. Jesus insists on it. We must not just talk about Jesus. We must show them Jesus by our love, our grace, our faith. And remember kindness. Be kind for every person you meet is fighting a great battle. God bless you all.